have this. Pull this out for a second. Let me see it. You have it there. Okay, awesome. There are some announcements in here I want you to take a look at. The first one, all the way at the bottom, is Redemption Student Summer Camp. Do you have any students in here? No, none at all. Awesome. Good to hear. So... <laughs> Maybe your parents are it. Maybe their parents are here. So critical for you to take a look at this. If you want your kid to go to summer camp, which is an awesome time where students get fired up for Christ, where they build relationships, where they are, are excited about the things that God is doing in their lives and in their friends, you want your kids to go to this. So make sure to go to redemptionaz.com, and it, there's more information there, as well as you can sign up right online. Super easy. Another thing you can do online, look at all the way at the top. It says baby dedications next week. If you would like your child to get dedicated, if you would like to come up here and stand with them and have the whole church promise that we will, we will help you raise your child in a, in a godly Christian way, then make sure that you email Ellen Mars and uh, let her know that as soon as possible or mark it on your connection card to make sure that, that she knows that. Last thing, it's not on your bulletin, but it's like a secret announcement. It's like invisible ink there. You can't see it, but I promise it's there. Next week being Mother's Day, there's going to be a photo booth out in the uh, lobby area for you to take pictures with your kids. Just something really cool that we're going to do next week. So make sure that if you want to have those pictures, just be prepared for that. Be ready for that. You're not going to be forced to do it, but just something fun to do. So as we are, now that all of you have tuned me out, You've all checked your Facebook. You've all responded to all your text messages. All of you know where you're going to go for lunch after. Stand up with me. We're going to read God's word right now. If you, are, if you have one of these black hardcover Bibles, it's page 939. Page 939. We're going to read God's word together to get us ready um, for Luke's message. From God's word. So page 939. Remember as I read this, this is God's word. Chapter 1, look at verse 26. 126. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, John. Give it a hand for John Benzinger, everybody. Well done. Made announcements fun. That's a hard task. That's a really hard thing to do. Um, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and delighted to open God's word with you. Um, thanks for, for being here. And... Um, Especially for those of you that came back, I issued a challenge, told everyone last week you agreed to come back this week too, so, so, many, so good to see many of you here. Um, some people told me, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it next week, but I, I'll watch online, I promise, and I said, well, God knows. <laughs> so, no, I didn't really say that, but, it, but it's good to have you here. Um, let's take a minute, if we can, as we begin here this morning, and, and let's pray together. Can you bow with me? Father, thank you. Um, that we have your word to guide us and to lead us. And thank you not only that we have your written word, but that we have the word made flesh, that we have Jesus. And so we pray now um, that your spirit would lead us to see Jesus and to appreciate him and to love him more because of our time together. We want to trust you deeper, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Well, this is week two of this ultra-long sermon on homosexuality from Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Um, and it's, uh, there's a reason that we're spending this much time on it. It feels a little uh, sort of strange when you think this is, you know, we're spending two weeks on just two verses. And also when you realize that um, this isn't even like the major point of Paul's argument uh, in this passage. This is one of the points. It's an important point, but, but it's not the main thing that he's looking at. So why would we spend two weeks focused on uh, this topic and, and this issue from these verses as we go through Romans? Why not just have it be in one week? Well, the reason is it's a big, big cultural issue. Right? Do you follow the news? Do you hear things that go on? I mean, it was amazing just Monday morning um, to, to be driving and to hear the announcement about Jason Collins. Jason Collins uh, made an announcement that he is uh, gay. He, went, he came out of the closet and uh, made that announcement, which was a significant thing in sports. Uh, Jason Collins is an NBA player, and I believe that that makes him the first uh, male uh, athlete on an active roster in a major sport. Boy, there's a lot of qualifiers, huh? Uh, to, to come out of the closet. So other pro athletes have, have come out as gay, but uh, none in a major sport and none that was still uh, playing, or at least Jason Collins hopes to be playing next year. He's kind of winding his career down. Uh, but it was a big announcement. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, the gay athlete. And then there was a lot of discussion about it in culture and a lot of controversy about it. For instance, on an Outside the Lines show, Chris Broussard, who's a former, or former NBA player, and uh, a- analyst for ESPN, who's a Christian, was asked what he thought about this, partly because Jason Collins would say, I'm gay and I'm a Christian. And so Chris Broussard, who's a follower of Jesus, was asked about it, and he gave an answer that was very much in line with what we looked at uh, last week in Romans 1, where he said, listen, I believe that all sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman is sin. That's what the Bible calls it. And if we live in unrepentant, rebellious sin, uh, we shouldn't we, we shouldn't be so bold to claim ourselves to be Christians unless we're going to really follow what God says. And, oh my gosh, he got killed. He got creamed for that. And, uh, you know, labeled intolerant and labeled bigot. He even talked about, I have, I have a, a close friend that, that's gay that was on the show with him. And he said, we know where we stand and we talk about it, but we respect one another. And, you know, we're not trying to be hateful or bigoted here, but we just disagree. He got lampooned, right? So this is a big cultural issue. It's not going away, right? Gay marriage, there's going to be rulings on that this summer from the Supreme Court, and you're just going to hear more and more and more and more. This this is a big cultural issue. But it's also a personal issue. Most of us have friends, family members, children, colleagues, people we work with, people we love, people we know that, that consider themselves to be gay or lesbian, people that we like and admire and appreciate and enjoy being around. People that in some cases we would even look at and go, I think they're a better person than me. And, and we have questions about what do, we, what do we do? How do we handle that? How do we approach it? When the topic comes up, what do we do? Do we try to bring the topic up? Do we try to avoid it? Do we try to get really close to those people? Do we try to pull away to make a point? I mean, what do we do? How do we handle those things? And then for others of us here, this is a personal issue for you where you, if at some point, maybe even now, experience varying levels of same-sex attraction? Confusion about what, what does this mean? Some of you maybe would even openly identify as gay or lesbian, and you've wrestled with those questions. You know, being married doesn't fix it either. There's probably 30%, I, I, is the statistic I heard, 30% of people with same-sex attraction are married. So that doesn't rule it out. And so this is a very personal 
issue. Just to review where we're going, because, because here's kind of how this is set up. Last week, I preached for almost an hour on the theology of homosexuality, where we looked in depth at the scripture in Romans chapter 1. We, impact, we unpacked all the arguments. We answered sort of the critical objections to it. We looked at all of that sort of stuff, did a lot of work with the text. Now, today, we're going to do more of an application message. So today is going to be a Christian attitude toward homosexuality. So I really view this as one sermon. You've already heard, hopefully last week, uh, the theology part and the scripture part. This week, we're going to get a little bit more practical. We'll look at some other verses as well. So if it frustrates you that I'm not like really focusing on 26 and 27 today, it's because I did that last week. Um, and so that's a little bit of where we're headed. But let me just review. I can't do the whole sermon over again. Uh, you're like, thank you, Jesus. But I, let me just kind of pull out some of the highlights. Uh, we said at the beginning of, of last week that God has the right to contradict us. God has the right to offend us. God has the right to say, you're wrong. That needs to change. Now, we don't really like that very much. We want a Stepford God. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Stepford Wives or read the book Stepford Wives? It was about guys that their wives were always talking back to them and they didn't like that, so they had them killed and replaced them with sort of robot brains that would always say, yes, dear, okay, dear, whatever you want, dear. And they loved that. I mean, a wife that never talks back, amazing, right? They're just, this is the greatest place to live. Well, that's how most of us want to think about God. We don't want a real God that can contradict us. We want a Stepford God that says, yes, dear, whatever you want, okay, dear. That's not the God of the Bible. God has the right to contradict us. He has the right to offend us, and he's going to do that as we study Romans 1 through 3. In Romans 1 through 3, we did an overview of last week, and we saw that it says everybody's guilty. In Romans 1, we see that irreligious people are guilty. They're guilty because they have seen at least some things about God. They don't know everything about God, but they know something, and they've suppressed it. They've been thankless. They've exchanged creation and loved and worshiped creation instead of the creator. Guilty. Then Paul says in chapter 2, Religious people are guilty because religious people have even more information about God that they're ignoring. And religious people are often the ones who are condemning irreligious people behavior while doing the very same things. Some of you are here today and you would not consider yourself a Christian and, and we're glad you're here. This is a great place to, to meet people and learn and grow. But one of the objections that you might have, maybe one of the feelings you would have about us, and to be honest, I think you're right, would be, they're a bunch of hypocrites. We are. We are. We all do things that we say we would never do or we would condemn in others, right? We, we like to judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. And, and Paul says, guilty. Then Romans 3 comes along and says, just in case you missed it, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Everyone's turned aside. All have become guilty. No one does good, not even one. And so we finished last week asking then, well, is there hope? Is there hope for us? Is there hope to be found if, if, if we're all guilty, if we all stand condemned before God? Not just because of homosexuality, but because of all the sin that's described in Romans 1 through 3. Is there hope? And we said a resounding yes, there's hope. That sure, God gives us over to our sin, but he also then gave Jesus over to death in our place. And there is freedom for all who will stop labeling themselves and forming an identity for themselves based off of their sin and instead look to their Savior. 
There is freedom for those who will say, I'm no longer going to be enslaved to my sinful desires. I'm going to be enslaved to Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to show you a story of of a person that's experienced that kind of hope. And uh, we're going to take a look at this. Uh, It's from, uh, we we often have God stories here where we have people share about what God's doing in their life. This is a God story just from another church. It's from a church in Seattle called Mars Hill. And uh, they're part of the Acts 29 network, which we're also part of. And uh, this is a story that I came across of a guy named Dan. And I think it's a really helpful story because it answers that question we finished with last week, is there any hope? And then it also sort of sets the tone for the rest of our conversation today in terms of what our attitude should be. So pay attention uh, as you watch it to what he says about hope and pay attention to what he says about how other Christians in particular interacted with him. Okay? Take a look. Today that I'd like to uh, introduce to you, his name is Dan. And Dan, could you just uh, give us an idea of... um, uh, how you happen to be here today and a bit of your story, okay? <laughs> uh, three and a half years ago, um, I came to Mars Hill for the first time. I'd been living in a foreign country and moved here for employment, and I had some friends that were attending the church, and they invited me to come with them. And at the time, I was uh, 100% uh, in the gay lifestyle. Um, it was everything that I was. It was the way I identified myself. It was the clothes I wore, the friends I hung out with, um, my life view, everything. And so I came to church here just mostly on their invitation. And um, walked in the building and saw these, these crazy lights and this guy yelling at me from the stage. And I just thought it was the, you know, the craziest place I'd ever been to. But it, it was good to be here because I, I had been at a church for a while and um, I had been a pastor before. Um, went to a Bible college um, and was youth pastoring in Montana where at the time I had a moral falling with a man and uh, stepped out of the ministry and went 100% into the gay lifestyle and believed uh, after a period of time that that was uh, a gift that God had given me, that uh, God made me gay, that I should be proud that I was gay. In fact, I even began to think about going into the gay church to be a gay pastor. I began to look and to see what was required of that. Okay, so, so let's just put this on pause and track this journey, okay? So grew up in a Christian home, went to uh, Bible college, became a youth pastor, had a moral failing with a man, um, had a partner that you were living with and planning on being Correct. life partners with, um, and believed that somehow maybe even investigating now an opportunity of ministry in a gay church would be something you should do. Yeah. Okay, so you guys kind of follow where, where Dan has gone. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> hey, I got to that point because I had no hope, really, that anything could be any different. Um, I had been told even by Christian pastors, they would say, well, what do you struggle with, brother? And I'd say, well, I struggle with same-sex attractions. And they would say, oh, wow, well, that's really a hard one to get over. So they had it categorized in its own kind of sin deal. And So I just thought, well, you know, this is the way that it is. I had no hope that it could be any different at all. So I came to this church, and after maybe three Sundays, I I came forward here where they have prayer time afterwards, and I just asked the pastor, I said, what does Mars Hill Church stand on homosexuality? And uh, he was bold, and he said, "Um, well, we believe that it's a sin. We believe that your eternal destiny is in question if you continue in that lifestyle. But he also said that um, we have hope for you 
and we have resources for you. We believe that God redeemed you on the cross, uh, that he can change your heart, he can change your worldview, and uh, those resources are there if you want them, brother. And that's kind of what he said. He prayed with me and sent me on my way, and, and so it took a little bit longer, and I was, felt like God moved me to just ask for some help here. Because even though I was in that lifestyle, and even though I told everyone, you know, God made me this way, and, and I'm proud to be gay, deep, deep in my spirit, deep in my heart, I knew that it wasn't right. I knew that I was in rebellion to God, but again, I had no hope. I thought, well, he's not going to help me, so that's just the way that it is. And so I emailed this uh, pastor, and they put me in contact with him, and um, I began to counsel with him. And it was interesting, because the first meeting we had together, you know, I said, said pastor, I said, uh, do you believe that it's wrong to be gay. And he stopped, he said, Dan, we're not gonna play that game with each other. He said, you know that it's wrong, that's why you're here. He goes, I just wanna talk to you about Jesus. We're not gonna talk to you about being gay. We're not gonna talk to you about homosexuality. We're just gonna talk to you about Jesus. How you really don't know him, how you really don't understand his redemptive power on the cross. And uh, I thought, well, I was actually a little upset because I'm like, wait a second. You know, I, I went to Bible college. I was a pastor. I've grown up in the church. I know everything about Jesus, and I knew nothing, really, nothing at all. And so that was the catalyst for me, and uh, there were some things I had to do. Um, I had to end the relationship with that man. I had to begin to change slowly um, some of my relationships, and, and I had to commit to reading the Word and, and letting God wash me and change me and uh, go to counseling appointments, and I went through redemption group, and, and so that was the process that God brought me through, and I could see those chains falling off of me. I could see hope where there was no hope, future where I didn't think that I was going to have one. I thought my life was going to be a panorama of sorrow, that I would never have a good day, and that isn't true. It's not true. No. So um, now what do you kind of do? What, what, what do you do with your spare time now? When I'm not at work, and uh, um, I help uh, lead redemption groups, and uh, I'm mostly out of the Shoreline campus, really. And um, I'm watching God do the same thing in other men's lives. And, you know, it's, it's and not just in the area of homosexuality. It's just in the area of life-controlling issues where they feel like they have no hope for freedom. You know, whether it's alcoholism or pornography or drug addiction, um, or spending habits, whatever it is. They, they come into these groups, and they are kind of sometimes at their wits' end. They just don't know what to do. And then we show them the cross. We show them God's redemptive work, and I'm seeing God deliver them as well. And so, um, yeah, so it's, it's fantastic. How, how do we, as part of the same city, how do we pray for them, Dan? Tell, tell us how we get involved in ministering. I think the first thing is to really check your motive for doing it, uh, to realize that your sin is just as bad as theirs, and to not uh, attempt to uh, minister to them with an attitude of you're better than them, or your sin isn't as great as theirs, or the repercussions for your sin are any worse. Um, that won't work at all. Um, and secondly, just to pray for sovereign work of God in their life. And even if you are out here today and you know someone in your own family or even you struggle with, with that um, issue or any issue, really life-controlling issue, the important part is that you realize that there's hope in Christ and he can take the impossible and make it possible without a doubt. And, and just to pray that God changes their heart and then look for open doors to just speak to people's lives. Love them. Just love them. That's, that's what we should do. And if they sin more, then love them more. 
and pray for them more. And um, yeah, so. It's a great story, isn't it? I'm going to hear, here's somebody that experienced the hope of Christ. He thought his life was going to be a panorama of sorrow. And it wasn't because of Jesus. I love just what his approach there. If they sin more, love them more. And, uh, and, and there's, I, think, I think that helps sort of set the tone for, for the answer to this question. This is the question we're looking at today. Is uh, what should a Christian's attitude be towards this issue of homosexuality in general and toward people who identify as gay or lesbian in particular? What should the attitude of our hearts be? What should the posture of our hearts be? Well, the good news is that the Scripture informs both our theology and our methodology. It informs our belief and our practice. It informs our message and our approach. And so we're going to turn to the Scripture, not necessarily just to Romans 1, but to some other parts of Scripture that are going to show us um, our approach and what it should look like. Now listen, we know that approach is often as important as the message. Right? You can say something that's true and completely undermine it by the way you say it, right? Sometimes, you, have you ever, men, have you ever had a moment where, you know, I know your wife's perfect, but, you know, where you, you know, want to tell her, that, you know, there's something here maybe to think about or to work on, and, and you decide, you know, I'm going to bring this up, and you end up apologizing at the end of that conversation, right? It's not because what you said was wrong, it's because of your approach. And so approach isn't everything, but approach is important. And, uh, and, and in this particular issue, and in every issue, you, you just know from approach, right? If, if you have a challenging thing to say to someone, say, you know, some of you are in a place where you manage people in your job, and you oversee people, and you lead people, and you know that there's times where you've got to deliver what's potentially a tough message. And, and if you go too hard, right, you just crush somebody, and you end up apologizing. If you go too soft, right, the meeting went well, but you go, at the end, I don't think they actually heard anything that I was actually intending to say, right? And so, so our approach matters in this. And so here's how we're going to look at this. Here's how we're going to frame this message is simply this way. We're going to look at our mission, our motive, and our method. Our mission, our motive, and our method. That's what we have. That's what the scripture gives us, a mission, a motive, and a method. First, our mission. Our mission, we see in Romans 1, is to lead people to trust Jesus. That's what Paul's mission was. He's the apostle who's writing this. He previously had been a hater of Christians, even even someone who killed Christians. You go, man, I'd like to hear what he wrote. (laughs) Um, But but now his heart's changed. His life has changed. And he says in chapter 1, verse 1, that he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. His whole life is oriented now around the good news of God. And the good news of God, that, that word gospel just means good news. The good news of God is that even though we have fallen into sin, God has sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life and die in our place, be raised victoriously over Satan's sin and death, and promise that he's coming back to renew and restore all things to God's original design. That's the good news. If we will trust in Christ, we can have our sins forgiven, we can have a hope of heaven, and more than that, we can have a purpose in this life living in line with God's created design. That's the good news. And so the mission that Paul was on was to call people to that, to lead people to that, to help people trust Jesus. And you see this in verse 5. 
he talks about that part of his goal is to bring about, this is in the middle of verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Faith, another word for faith is trust. God, God wants us to trust him. And Paul's saying, I'm, I'm doing all this work. The reason I am willing to travel the world, the reason I am willing to be beaten, to be shipwrecked, to be left for dead, the reason I am willing to be um, maligned and misrepresented, the reason I'm willing to do all of that is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. I want people to trust God. And when they trust him, they obey him. And they live in line with his design. And that's what I want. That's what I want. So we see that that was Paul's mission. But we also see that, that, that our, our mission here is to lead people to trust Jesus because the way we got into the mess is by distrusting him. Right? This, this was pointed out by one of the guys in my RC this past week. It was really insightful. We were looking at this chunk of Romans 18, uh, 1, 18 to 32, and, and we were looking at all the, all the sin that God gives us over to of all different shapes and sizes and forms. And, and what you see as you look at that is the way we got into that mess was unbelief. Right? Look at it. I don't want to just make that point. I want you to see it here in the text. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's unbelief. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He goes on to say in verses 23 and 25 that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. We worship created things instead of the creator. That's all unbelief, distrust of God. So that's how we get into the mess that we're in. Right, as you think about the mess of your own life, the areas of your relationships that are broken, the areas where your spending habits are out of control, the areas of frustration and inner anger that sometimes comes out and sometimes just sort of boils beneath the surface. As you think about all of that, how do you get into that mess? Unbelief. How do you get out? Belief. Trust. Worshiping and serving God, thanking Him. That's how we got into the mess. That's how we get out. And so our mission, as we think about relating to anybody, is to lead people to trust Jesus. That's what it's about. Now, there are some alternative missions that we could all get geeked up about, and many Christians do, that are not the main mission we should be on, the main mission we should be about. So one thing that we could get all excited about that's not our mission is it's not our mission to make a point mentioned this last week. You can make a difference or you can make a point. And a lot of people are just really happy to make a point. I said it. Great. Did it impact anybody? Nope, but I said it. Anybody have a change of heart or mind on it? Nope, but I said it. I was faithful. Really? You just made a point. You didn't make a difference. So it's not our job to make a point. The other thing is it's not our mission to win a theological argument, to convince everyone that homosexuality is in fact a sin. That's not our, that's not our mission. Listen, if you talk to people who identify as gay or lesbian, they are not like in the dark about what Christians say about homosexuality. They, they know God says it's a sin. 
Right? It's, it's, that, it's Dan's story that he was just sharing of going, Dan, we're not going to play that game. You wouldn't be here if you didn't think it was wrong. So, so we don't need to win an argument. Our, our goal is not to focus on you know, this particular theological thing. It's to focus on leading people to trust Jesus. There's a man named Cy Rogers who was living for a long time as an openly gay man, even to the point of pursuing a transgender operation. And God got a hold of his life in a really radical way and has begun to use him all over the world in some interesting ways. And, and he makes this point related to this idea. He says this, Christians kept getting my sexuality confused with my problem, which was that I needed a savior. See, they thought the problem was he was homosexual. The problem was he needed Jesus. He says this, The reason I'm now a Christian isn't because somebody argued theology. It isn't because I was tired of that life or unhappy with it. It's all I knew. The reason why I would dare to face a future I could not imagine without everything that mattered to me is because I found the one thing that mattered more, and I wanted that. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying, I I still wanted to be gay. It's all I ever knew. It was comfortable for me, but I found a greater treasure. Right? It's like when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a man who found treasure hidden in a field, and in his joy he sold all that he had to buy that field. So if you're a follower of Christ, what is your attitude towards this? What's your mission? Is it to get everyone to agree with your theological perspective? No, it's to lead them to Jesus. It's also not our mission to convert people to heterosexuality or to marriage. You don't do this with any other area, right? If you have a, if you have a non-Christian friend who's a materialist, you don't go, oh, that's my materialist friend, Dave. Dave, you know, can't be a Christian until you get rid of your materialism. You don't do that. You don't say, oh, there's my angry friend, Sharon. Sharon, I'd like you to be a Christian, but you need to stop being angry first. You don't do that. But we tend to do that with homosexuality. It makes no sense. But part of it is because I think one of the main idols that, that Christians have is marriage and family. We often think that like, you're not really okay until you're married, which is why some of you are single. And this is a, it's hard to be in a church like this sometimes because sometimes people sort of look at you like, you're single? You, what, what's wrong with you? Or, or worse, you're divorced? Oh, no. And listen, this can be an ostracizing, church can be an ostracizing place if you're in that boat. I see some of you nodding your heads like, yes, I know. And it's because Christians idolize marriage even more than they should. And that just creates more problems. I shared with you last week just briefly a quote from Rosaria Butterfield. I'll tell you more of her story today. She was an English professor at Syracuse who was a you know, strong supporter of the gay movement, was herself a lesbian, and she had a conversion to Christ. And she found, after she became a Christian, that a lot of Christians were kind of on her case about, well, when are you going to get married? When you, you, know, you don't know that you're really healed until you're heterosexual. And she said, you got all this goofed up. Here's what she says about it. She says, healing to the sexual sinner is death. Nothing more, nothing less. Not, not real, not physical death, the death of that sin. She says, I think that too many young Christian fornicators plan that marriage will redeem their sin. Too many young Christian masturbators plan that marriage will redeem their patterns. Too many young Christian pornographers think that having legitimate sex will take away the desire to have illicit sex. They're wrong. 
She says, and the marriages that result from this line of thinking are dangerous places. Do you get what she's saying? She's saying people think, oh, I struggle with pornography. If I just get married, then that'll fix it. Nope. No. It'll just bring that into a marriage and create more devastation. So here's how she finishes. She says, I know why over 50% of Christian marriages end in divorce. Because Christians act as though marriage redeems sin. Marriage does not redeem sin. Only Jesus himself can do that. What's our mission? It's not to make a point. It's not to win an argument. It's not to convert people to the lifestyle that we want them to be in. It's to lead them to trust Jesus. Now, there's a motive behind that mission that the Scripture lays out in a number of places, and the motive is simply this. Love. Love. What should motivate us to try to lead any people to trust Jesus, it's love. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. This golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you, it all has to do with love. Love, it's critical. That's why we would do this. If you have found that Jesus is a treasure worth giving up everything for, and you love people, you want them to have him, right? motivates us to love. Now, love has been hijacked in our culture, and it's been hijacked by conservatives and by liberals, by Christians, by non-Christians. Love has been really, really uh, distorted in terms of our perspective. Conservative people, uh, religious people have distorted it in many ways by saying that love is about romance. We've got to get the romance back, and, and love is just about your feelings, and, and we tend to do that. Right? I don't feel, just don't feel in love anymore. Well, love's more than just a feeling. But there's another way to look at this that's equally hijacked, and that is to view love as affirming everything. Right? So, so this, is a, this is a common way that I think the gay uh, community and, and the, the movement that sort of is behind that has been very successful at redefining love. They're saying love is you affirm everything about me and everything I do. Well, that's not, that's not real love. If you're a parent, you should let your kid do everything they want to do? No. Why? Because you hate them? No, because you love them. Right? So to love is to want somebody's best. Not as they define it, but as God defines it. That's what real love is. There's a, a song that's very popular right now, particularly among young people, uh, by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis and... Um, it's a, it's a song that really kind of has stirred up a lot of support for gay marriage and, and that sort of thing. And there's this refrain at the end of the song that is quoting from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And just over and over again, it says, love is patient, love is kind, love is patient, love is kind, love is patient, love is kind. Right? Saying, like, of course, if you love people, of course you're going to let who, anyone marry whoever they want. Of course. Right? It's love. Well, but if you read 1 Corinthians 13 you also see that it also says love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So love is a little bit more full-orbed than just a simplistic affirm everything. But, but yet, we have to admit that Christians are sometimes guilty of not being particularly loving. My favorite story about this, some of you have heard me tell this story, is the story of Preacher Dan at University of Illinois. That's where Molly and I went to college, and uh, we were there. And um, Preacher Dan was like a broken clock. He was right twice a day. Um, you would occasionally go listen to him, and you'd be like, 
man, this guy's good. You know, and then you'd come back the next time and he'd be yelling at all the sorority girls in miniskirts and telling them they were of the devil. And you're like, whoa, okay, man. Um, but Preacher Dan, you know, people like to gather around Preacher Dan mostly because they like to mock him. And I remember one particular day coming out of class right about noon when uh, at University of Illinois there's this big, beautiful, what every college should look like, quad of, you know, grass and sidewalks and and I came out of class, and it's the time where it's busiest on campus. And I come out of Lincoln Hall, and, and uh, Preacher Dan is standing there. And there is a huge crowd standing around him. And he's ranting and raving about who knows what. He's going. And it's interesting enough, you know, and you sort of stop to watch the action, especially as a, as a Christian. I was, was curious, how are people going to respond to him? And what's he saying? And that sort of thing. Well, out of the crowd, this one particular day, busts out this guy in a tie-dye T-shirt, and he says, now announcing, hear ye, hear ye, the first ever gay quad preacher. Right, and he has a, he's got a rainbow flag, and, and, he, and he starts yelling and shouting, and Preacher Dan is yelling and shouting. Well, the crowd just gets bigger and bigger. And I mean, this is like a car wreck. We've got to just see what happened, you know? And everyone's gathering around, and, and, and they both are kind of talking over each other. And the gay preacher in particular, that's, how he, that's what he called himself, he said, he kept saying, talking about love and talking about how Christians had mistreated uh, gay people and saying, is this love? Is this love? And Preacher Dan's talking louder and he's talking louder and he's talking louder. And he's going, is this love? Is this love? And finally, Preacher Dan wheels around. I'm not kidding. He went like this. I do love you, you miserable wretch. (laughs) Well, the crowd did exactly what you just did, right? They just uproarious laughter. And and what what, what did they hear? You miserable wretch. Right, you can say it a certain way in a way that undermines the very words you're saying. I don't think there was any love in Dan's heart for that guy or for anybody, maybe. I don't know. Um, but, but Christians are guilty of that. And, and sadly, here, here's what breaks my heart, is I don't think most Christians are like that. But, there's, but, but, but people, especially in the gay community, they've had enough encounters with people like Preacher Dan that then when they meet you and they find out you're a Christian, they assume that you're that same way. And so it's very hard, for, right? You come into it going, I'm here to love, I'm here to you know, care for you, and they just assume you hate their guts. Our mission is to lead people to trust Jesus. Our motive is to love, and our method is grace and truth. Grace and truth. Now here we have to turn to the example of Jesus, right? As followers of Christ, we are to imitate him and to be like him. And Jesus, we're told in John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, Jesus, the eternal word, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See that last phrase? What was Jesus? What marked Jesus' life? What marked Jesus' ministry? What was it like to be around Jesus? He was full of grace and truth. Not just a balance of them, but full of both. Right? He was so full of grace that in the next chapter, he goes to a wedding. And his first miracle, right? All his miracles were usually to heal people or like teach some great lesson. His first miracle is to make water into wine just so the party is better. That's grace. And then in the 
Next section, right after that, he sits down and he ties a a whip of cords, right? He's angry and he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables and the money changers of people who who were doing injustice to the poor. Full of grace and truth. One of my favorite stories of this you can read about in John chapter 8. In John 8, there's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And the religious people all bring her before Jesus. And they say, Jesus, in the law it says that we're to stone someone like this. Now, it's interesting because the guy's not there. So they left him out. We're not sure what happened there. Jesus, what should we do? They're trying to trap him. And Jesus really curiously, no one really understands why or, or what he what he meant by this, but, but it says in the text that Jesus bent down and he wrote something in the, in the dirt, perhaps quoting scripture. We, we don't know. Maybe he just doodled, right? You're a doodler. Maybe, you know, think better when you doodle. I don't know. But he writes something in the dirt. And then he asks, or he says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. One by one, they begin to drop the stones and they walk away. And Jesus says, uh, where, where are those who condemn you? And the lady says, they're gone. And Jesus says, and, and this last phrase of this story is so important because it shows us grace and truth. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Right? Grace. I don't condemn you either. I'm giving you grace, truth, Go and sin no more. What you did wasn't right. It wasn't okay. It needs to stop. It's going to hurt you. And in that, I think Jesus is saying, listen, you're trying to find your satisfaction in the arms of another man. Find it in me. I'm the living water. But you see grace and truth. Now, that, the reason I love that story as it relates to this issue is because in particular, people will say, oh, well, you're just judging gay people. Let him who's without sin cast the first stone. Grace. Wouldn't Jesus just be tolerant of everybody? Well, Jesus is more gracious than any of us. But he's also more truthful. Go and sin no more. It's not right. Grace and truth are hard for us to deal with. Uh, Just to kind of give you an example of this, I've got two little mini volleyballs here from Michigan, which makes me want to puke. Um, My my sister-in-law played volleyball at Michigan, and um, so we got these balls. They're autographed by her or whatever. I like that. Okay. So we have, we have these Michigan volleyballs, and um, aren't they ugly? Isn't this just so ugly? Um, anyway, imagine that this is, this is grace and this is truth. Here, here's, here's what this is like for us, right? We'll, we'll grab grace. We'll go, yes, I need to be kind. I need to be loving. I need to listen. I need to be patient. I need to forgive. Oh, wait, but i got to be truthful, too. And we'll try to grab truth. Oh, oh, we lose it. Yeah, thank you. And we go, oh, well, now I'm truthful. And I told them, man, I stood for what was right. And I was bold. Yeah, but I wasn't very gracious. I got it. Oh, and we lose it again, right? That's, that's what it's like. And, and it's very hard to, to hold both, right? One just keeps slipping out of your hands. That's how it just seems to work. And yet, if this is what Jesus is like, Right? And it's not saying sometimes Jesus was gracious and sometimes he was truth. He was always both. It's hard and we fail to be that. But this is our method, grace and truth. Talking a minute about 
how that can look personally and give you some examples of it. But I, I want to bring up uh, the issue of gay marriage because I think with this issue in particular, it's especially difficult to know how to, how to do this right, how to be gracious and truthful. Um, I don't think the position that Christians hold on the issue has changed that much. What's changed is everything else, right? The whole environment around it, the whole culture around it, the whole sort of assumptions about it. But it's a, it's a really interesting issue, and I, and I don't want to camp on it like too much or, or make it the main point. I don't, that's not the main point of this, of this message. But I also feel like if I didn't talk about it, you'd all go, wimp. That's the main like, question we all have is, what does this have to do with gay marriage, and how does that work? And will you speak into that? So, so yeah, I'll, I'll speak into that a little bit. And it's, this is a conversation that's better one-on-one than, you know, one-on-300. But we'll have it. Um, so here, here's, based on the teaching of Scripture, how do we uphold grace and truth as it relates to this very public, very cultural, social issue? Well, I think Christians should advocate for and uphold Christian marriage. Now, notice, I'm not saying biblical marriage. And I, and I would advise that we strike that phrase from our, from our vocabulary. Biblical marriage. When you say biblical marriage... Which one? Solomon's? Thousand wives? Oh, how about David's? Adulterer? How about Abraham's? Oh, that lady, oh, she's not my wife, just my sister. Go ahead and have her. Biblical marriage? Right? I mean, there's all kinds of examples of, of marriages in the Bible that are not in line with God's ideal, and they're not in line with, with what Christ even has said about marriage and what the Bible tells us about marriage in other places and how it represents the gospel. So, so I don't want to support biblical marriage because I think people, uh, you know, gay marriage supporters will just say, well, you're crazy. See, the, the standard's everywhere. Just pick whatever you want. And, and I don't think that's right. Instead, we should uphold and advocate for Christian marriage. The Bible begins with a heterosexual marriage between Adam and Eve, and it ends with a heterosexual marriage between Jesus and and the bride, his church. It's the storyline. It's the arc of the Bible. And, and the reason I think this is an important issue is because in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that marriage is a picture of the gospel. That people should be able to look at a Christian marriage and see a husband who sacrificially dies to himself for the sake and the good of his wife. And a wife who respects and follows and follows her husband and is willing to do that. Who wouldn't want that? Right? That's a picture of the gospel. And Christians, through, through our own failed marriages and our own low view of marriage in some ways, it's, it's interesting. We idolize it like we want it to be great, but, but functionally we don't live it out very well. And the picture we show to the world is often not very good. And gay marriage would distort that picture of the gospel even further. So I think Christians should stand for and uphold Christian marriage. One man and one woman. Now, I want to just say a word to those of you who have a more libertarian streak in you, since that's kind of our, you know, there's other parts of town that have a more, you know, liberal streak. We have a more libertarian streak in some ways, I think, in our church. And so some of you would have a perspective that would go, you know what, the government's involved in way too much already. What do they need to even be in marriage for? You know, 
Whatever. Let them get married. Let whoever gets Whatever. It's not the government's job. It's not the government's business. Now, I would agree that the government tends to be involved in just slightly too much. Um, maybe quite a bit. But the, the Scripture tells us, we're going to see in Romans 13, we're going to see a place where it tells us that government is instituted and given by God. So, so no government is not a biblical idea. And it says in Romans 13, 4, that government is God's servant for your good. So one of the things that government is supposed to do, now it fails at it a lot, but it's supposed to uphold what is good, to serve what is good, to institute laws and ideas that are good, that promote what's, what's good in society. And, and government fails to do that all the time. But, but if we love our neighbor as ourselves, why wouldn't we support and stand for laws that are in line with God's design, and therefore what is good for our neighbor. Why wouldn't we do that? It seems to me to go, well, who cares, whatever, is an unloving heart. That's an unloving and therefore unchristlike attitude. I have a friend who I've had some interactions with, and, and his kind of answer to that would be, well, then should we outlaw all sin? And, and I say, no. no one's, I don't know of anyone that's arguing for that. I don't think you can. But I, just because you're not going to outlaw all sin doesn't mean you should institutionalize it. Now, standing for that point of view will make, that will be a perspective that will be increasingly intolerable, that will be increasingly unpopular, that will increasingly marginalize you. And you won't have a chance to fully explain yourself, and you'll have all kinds of people assume all kinds of things about you, and you'll be labeled in ways that you don't think are fair. That's part of the deal. That's what's going to happen. That's just life. And so I think we also maybe need to prepare for the reality that it's very likely that gay marriage is going to be part of our society. Maybe this summer, maybe next summer, maybe 20 summers from now, it's coming. In a lot of places, it's already here. And what we need to do is just remember as followers of Christ, we're not in Christendom anymore. Christendom was when everybody had a biblical perspective and a biblical worldview, and you could quote verses, and you could make biblical allusions. Right? If you ever wonder like, why all these presidents in history re- refer to all these biblical themes, it's because people knew the Bible then. They don't now. Well, they should. Christian America, let's get back to the founding of our country. That'd be great, wouldn't it? It's not going to happen. So you can either just whine and moan about how it's not going to happen and it's all wrong, or you can make a point, or you can do what the early church did, which is say, we're marginalized, but they will know we are Christians by our love, and we will tell people that there is a better life found in Jesus, and we will serve them relentlessly even when it costs us. May we take that posture towards this issue. All right, enough about that. I want to give you some personal uh, more examples. That's more cultural and social and public, but, but, but where most of us are going to interact on this stuff is going to be personal. And given what we're talking about here, our mission is to lead people to trust Jesus with a motivation of love and a method of, of grace and truth. You go, okay, well, what would that look like? What, what, 
What would that be? Well, I want to give you what I think is a a couple of great examples. And the first one um, is a relationship that's developed between Dan Cathy and Shane Windemeyer. Uh, Dan Cathy is the president of Chick-fil-A. Perhaps you heard uh, months ago about the, you know, there was a big hubbub about he had said that he believed that marriage should be between one man and one woman, and there was a big bunch of protests, and then a bunch of everyone went to Chick-fil-A to show them how supportive they were. There was just this huge controversy, right? And maybe you heard about that. Um, Well, here's an article from the Huffington Post uh, written by Shane Windemeyer, who's a gay activist, and I'll just read to you and and put it up on the screen here so you can kind of follow along. This isn't his whole article, just it's already long enough. I just had to, but I kind of edited it a little bit. Not, I didn't change anything. I just cut some parts out. Hopefully it's still fair to what he wrote. Here's what he says. I'm coming out in a new way. As a friend of Chick-fil-A's president and COO, Dan Cathy, and I'm nervous about it. For many, this news of friendship might be shocking. After all, I'm an out 40-year-old gay man and a lifelong activist for equality. I'm also the founder and executive director of Campus Pride, the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender and ally college students. I have spent quite some time being angry at and deeply distrustful of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. If he had his way, my husband of 18 years and I would never be legally married. For nearly a decade now, my organization, Campus Pride, has been on the ground with student leaders protesting Chick-fil-A at campuses across the country. And the whole nation was aware that Dan was guilty as charged in his support of a biblical definition of marriage. What more was there to know? On August 10th, 2012, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise call from Dan Cathy. He had gotten my cell phone number from a mutual business contact serving campus groups. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear me apart, right? Give me a piece of his mind. Turn his lawyers on me. The first call lasted over an hour. And the private conversation led to more calls the next week and the week after. Dan Cathy knew how to text, and he would reach out to me as new questions came to his mind. This was not going to be a typical turn of events. His questions and a series of deeper conversations ultimately led to a number of in-person meetings with Dan and representatives from Chick-fil-A. He had never before had such dialogue with any member of the LGBT community. It was awkward at times, but always genuine and kind. It is not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. We see this failure to listen and learn in our government, in our communities, and in our own families. Dan Cathy and I would, together, try to do better than each of us had experienced before. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for Campus Pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns and the real-life accounts from youth about the negative impact that Chick-fil-A was having on campus climate and safety at colleges around the country. Through all this, Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Even when I continued to directly question his public actions and the funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and hear my perspective. He and I were committed to a better understanding of one another. Our mutual hope was to find common ground if possible and to build respect no matter what. We learned about each other as people with opposing views, not as opposing people. Isn't that a great line? Throughout the conversation, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than a Christian. 
Dan expressed regret and a genuine sadness when he heard of people being tr- treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. Dan, in his heart, is driven by his desire to minister to others, and he had to choose to continue our relationship throughout this controversy. He had to both hold his beliefs and welcome me into them. He had to face the issue of respecting my viewpoints and life, even while not being able to reconcile them with his belief system. He defined this to me as the blessing of growth. He expanded his world without abandoning it. I did as well. That is grace and truth. That's making a difference and not just a point. When you go on a radio show, you make a point. When you pick up the phone and you have that conversation and you build that relationship, you make a difference. Shane Winmeyer took incredible heat for writing this article and for canceling the protests against Chick-fil-A. But Dan Cathy made a difference, not just a point. I love it. He's saying that he never, I didn't change his mind. He didn't change my mind. But, but we began to understand each other, and he took a stand while caring about me. You go, well, but, he did, but Shane didn't become a Christian. It didn't work. Well, he didn't become a Christian yet. But I love that. It wasn't for publicity. The only reason we know about this story is because Shane Winmeyer came out and said, here's, here's what happened. It's a great example. Last example I want to share is of Rosaria Butterfield. I mentioned her before, the professor from Syracuse. And she was an English professor and was studying to um, write a book about how wacky the religious right was. And so she began to read the Bible as research for you know, why these wacky religious right people believed all this. And uh, she also then wrote an article critiquing Promise Keepers, the Promise Keepers movement. And she began to get a bunch of letters back about that article about Promise Keepers. And she liked an organized desk, so she had a a fan mail box, and a hate mail box. She said every letter that came in was very easy to tell. Fan mail, hate mail, fan mail, hate mail, except one. There was one letter from a Reformed pastor in Syracuse. She read it, reread it, read it again, and she couldn't tell which box to put it in. And she, you know, kept it on her desk for six days and then would put it in the recycling. Oh, I'm going to get rid of it. And then would dig it out again and reread it again. And, and uh, he asked interesting questions, questions that no one else was asking her. And he offered to be in touch with her and to communicate about these things. And so she thought, well, what the heck? I'm doing research on religious people. And uh, he's from a Reformed church. That must be enlightened. So, I'll, yeah, I'll give him a call. And... Uh, that's what she thought. And so she, she gave him a call, and they had a conversation, and it concluded by him inviting her over to his home for dinner with his wife. And uh, she was like, well, what's this going to be like? I'm going to go inside the home of one of these wacky religious right people. She went there, and the home was in her neighborhood. It looked a lot like her home. And she sat down to have dinner, and there was a vegetarian meal prepared, which she appreciated since she was a vegetarian. And she was environmentally conscious, so she appreciated that they weren't running the air conditioner, even though it was kind of warm. And they began to talk, and they began to develop a relationship. And Pastor Ken didn't invite her to church, didn't ask her about homosexuality. They began a relationship. Well, meanwhile, she's reading the Bible voraciously for research. 
begins to have questions and now has a place to ask these questions and, and, and would go, she, she actually would go sometimes to the church and just sit in the parking lot across the street to sort of look at it and go, what are these people like? And she'd see all the, you know, these big vans pulling up and all these kids coming out and she'd go, what in the world? And, right, and she's in her pickup truck with her bumper stickers on the back and rainbow flags and, and you know, but eventually she went in and she built the relationship. And, she, and the, what brought her to Christ was not a bunch of people asking her about homosexuality. What brought her to Christ was reading the Bible and asking, what if this is true? What if it's true that Jesus is risen from the dead? What if it's true that Jesus is Lord of all? If that's true, then whatever I feel, I need to submit it to him. And she began to wrestle those questions. And it wasn't easy. I shared last week about the, the devastating chaos that came and the train wreck experience it was to leave behind everything that was comfortable and familiar and come to Christ. And there were many moments where she wanted to bail and she wanted to just kind of add a little bit in. I love this quote that she has. I shared this last week. She says, I'm grateful that when I heard the Lord's call on my life and I wanted to hedge my bets, keep my girlfriend, and add a little God to my life, I had a pastor and friends in the Lord who asked nothing less of me than that I die to myself. What do you hear in, in these stories we've shared today? What do you hear in, in, in Dan's story, who, who you saw earlier? Funny, everyone in this message is named Dan. So the first Dan from the video. What did you hear in his story? What did you hear in Dan Cathy's story? What did you hear in Rosaria Butterfield's story? What you heard were Christians who were on a mission to lead people to trust in Jesus, motivated by love, doing it with truth and grace. That's what we're called to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your son Jesus who was full of grace and truth. God, we desire to imitate him, to follow his character. God, forgive us ourselves for the sin in our hearts, the ways that we're blind even to our own unrighteousness. Cause it to make us repent and to come to you for forgiveness and for grace. God, thank you that you give us that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you're feeling any conviction from that, if you're feeling any desire to, to change and grow from that, um, we don't want you to leave feeling conviction. We want you to leave feeling with joy. So how are we going to do that? Well, the band's going to come back up and sing in a little bit. Opportunity to worship by giving in the, the mailboxes in the back. But before they come back, we're going to enjoy a time of communion. And uh, it's there we remember the cross, and it's there that we remember why we need a cross. Um, the, the broken cracker that you're going to go get represents the body of Christ. He lived the life that we didn't live, and it was broken for our benefit, his body was. The cup, the juice, it represents his blood. It was poured out. It was used to purchase people for himself with that blood. And so we're going we're gonna to give you a chance to remember him personally. Um, 